Hello, I'm Kirk Bailey and this week in episode 25 of the Boss Podcast, we welcome Clark Ching, all the way from New Zealand, with his Boss USA talk, Rock, Paper, Scissors, a talk that looks at everyday stories that can help you make changes in your business. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. An author, lecturer, and computer scientist with an MBA, Clark Ching has been powered by Goldratt's theory of constraints for 25 years and using it to speed up Agile since 2003. Whereas others go deep into the details, acquiring more and more knowledge, Clark went deep into TOC and Agile and then decided to go wide, cherry-picking both bodies of knowledge, simplifying them and sharing the most useful bits far and wide. In this talk from Boss USA, Clark looks at the everyday stories that you can learn from and how to use them to implement Agile and any other changes in a non-threatening and surprisingly useful way. Happy listening. Okay, good morning, good morning. Uh, It's just a hint of what's to come. If you remember nothing, or if you'd like to leave now, just remember that stories are sneaky little bastards, okay? All right, I may repeat that a few times. Uh, anyway, hey, it's, it's really lovely to be back here. I lived in Dublin uh, for three years, from 97 to 2000. Uh, I came here from New Zealand, I met my wife here, and we actually used to come up to this place in the weekends um, and wander around. There was no... Uh, hotel back then, but it's really, really lovely area around here. So it has very, very fond um, memories for me. I say nearly forgetting the word memories. Back then, we, she was a junior doctor, and I was a C programmer working for the Bank of Ireland, uh, just down the road here. If you're from, who's from Dublin, just out of interest? Cool, so just down the road in Cabin Teeley. Um, so I kind of was a programmer then. Nowadays, she's a very serious, sensible, old-age psychiatrist consultant. Uh, and So she's gone up the career ladder that way, just as she always expected. And me, I kind of pivoted severely. Uh, and nowadays, I help people with Agile. And what I do is I try to make Agile easier to understand easier to do, simpler, and probably most importantly, profitable, Uh, so it hangs around. And this talk today is about some of the stuff that I've learned uh, that works for my engineering brain, uh, techniques that I use to get ideas across to other people of a similar ilk. If you ask the people I work with what I do, they just say, oh, he wanders around all the time, acting dumb, Uh, and telling stories about buffalo. And you'll see the buffalo story shortly. But first, I need to take you back. If you don't know, a Muppet is an idiot. So 2003 for me was, uh, was a really, really shitty year. It was the most, probably the most horrible year of my entire life uh, because it's the only time until I had children 
uh, that a whole bunch of people thought I was incompetent. Uh, they thought I was a Muppet. They thought I was an idiot. The people I work with just sort of looked at me and sort of shook their heads. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. See, I was going well. I had pivoted long before I knew the word pivot. I changed direction, uh, and everything was just crashing around me, and it was horrible. Uh, the year before that was brilliant. It was the year for me that I saw the light. I mean this in a vaguely religious sense. I had for years uh, been studying and doing uh, manufacturing stuff. So I started with this book up here, The Goal. Who's seen The Goal? Read The Goal? Okay, that's good. Uh, and Stephen, yes, I remember you mentioned it last year. Uh, absolutely, I read that book and my whole life changed. Uh, I've been doing that stuff ever since. But that led me into a whole world of stuff around lean, uh, around just-in-time, all the quality movement. I read and read and read that stuff, and I even got to do it in the real world, which was kind of, kind of, kind of amazing because I was working as a programmer. And so I went off and thought, I love the, if, if you could draw a big Venn diagram here right in front of you, this might seem vaguely familiar. And in one circle, you put business, and in the other circle, you put software. You'd have well, this conference right at the intersection, and you also have where I decided I wanted to live the rest of my life, and then kind of the business of software. And I'd been doing an MBA, uh, and I got to the end of it, and I decided, I'd heard a little bit about this Agile stuff, and when I started reading it, I realized it was all that stuff, but it was applied to the software world I worked. But I couldn't understand why all the quality stuff that we were doing in the software world just made absolutely uh, no sense if you'd read this stuff. And then, I read that book. Actually, I did read all of that book, but I read a sentence, one sentence in the preface in about the second or third character of the draft book. I read that sentence, and after that, absolutely everything changed. The light bulb went on, and I could see everything. The whole world was different. Uh, it really was a, a, a religious moment for me in a very technical, nerdy sense. And I got it, and I knew that that's what I had to do. Uh, for the rest of my life, and so far I have, was to go out and take this stuff, match it up with this stuff, and explain it to other people. And in fact, I'd love to tell you what that sentence was, but it was in the draft, and they, they cut it out. <laughs> and it never made it to the, the final version of the book. So anyway, I had my light bulb moment, and then I went off, uh, and I started like doing the equivalent of uh, knocking on doors. Um, and if you were... Uh, in a religious sense, I started telling people about all of this stuff. And I was brilliant at articulating it. Uh, I had a little local Agile user group, Agile Scotland. Uh, and I'd go there and I'd talk to all my buddies there. And they go, yeah, that's brilliant. And we'd all stand there and all agree. Um, and then I'd go to work. And they would look at me like I was this guy. And, and just to make things worse, it was as if I... It was as if I was talking with that guy's voice. Just was, they, they looked at me as if I was an idiot. Uh, and it was really, really frustrating. It was just so horrible. They, they, they really thought I was just a complete idiot. And these guys here are my bosses. <laughs> That's how I saw them. 
They saw me as the idiot. Remember that. This is actually some, there's something wrong with the way I was doing things. These guys here. So one day, I'm standing at the coffee machine, getting a little coffee thing out, uh, and my boss's boss comes over to me. And he says, Clark. And I say, yes. And he says, agile. And I say, yes. <laughs> and he says, oh, uh, don't let it interfere with your day job, OK? OK, right. Second boss, his boss, is, his boss. a few months later, I'm, I'm showing my dissertation to my sponsor, so my boss's boss's boss. And we're sitting in a corner quietly. She's read through it, and she looks at me over her glasses like this, and she says, it, it's OK, Clark. I, I won't tell anyone about this. <laughs> Welcome to the land of the Muppet. So... As you can imagine, I got really frustrated. I got really angry, but really only on the inside. Uh, I wasn't nasty or anything. I got really angry, really frustrated, and I didn't know what to do about this because what was absolutely clear to me was making no sense to other people. It was just making me look stupid, and my credibility there was shot. And then something absolutely brilliant happened, which is that the company that I was working for had a really bad year, and they had to lay a whole lot of people off. And I got redundancy, and I left. And that left me with time to start writing a book. Um, and gave me time to think. But first, before I tell you about what I thought, does this kind of vaguely feel remotely familiar to any of you? A little bit? Yeah? OK. So. I'll tell you what I did about this. I, I went away and I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I thought. And then I slowly, slowly realized that I had an engineer's brain, uh, but with missionary zeal. Uh, that was a bad, bad mix. I wanted to be an agile missionary. But I didn't know the difference between preaching to the converted and preaching to those who were not yet converted. Two totally, totally different things. So my ideas ended up in the chasm, and me, the missionary, I ended up in the pot. I drew that, by the way. Thank you. Yep, you like that? You're, uh... oh. Oh, yeah. So I'm sitting there in this pot of my own making, and I'm realizing that I know stuff in my head, but I don't know how to sell it. So what do you do when you're a geek that likes books? You go read books that you haven't read before about selling. You immerse yourself into it. Is this familiar to anyone, this kind of process? Go read books and books and books. I read books, and I read books, and I read books, and all sorts of stuff about selling. And they were all really, really interesting, but they weren't really usually targeting the kind of thing that I was trying to do. And I came to a startling conclusion. All the books actually say this in black and white. The problem is resistance to change, which is a bit like telling me I'm too fat because my belt's too big. It's not very helpful. Um, so I went away and... I figured out that given my personality and my background, I didn't need to go out and sell people. 
on the on this stuff. I needed to, to go out and figure a way of getting the ideas that were in my head into other people's heads without provoking resistance. And that's really what this talk is about. I came up with four of them. And I'll zip through the first three very quickly. The first one is a wonderful book. Uh, I wish I'd read it when I was 12. Uh, Crucial Conversations. Has anyone read that here? There you go, just, just a few. That book, if you ever find yourself butting heads with people all the time, go read that book. It's a, it's a great, it's just lovely, it just explains in very, very simple terms how you can have conversations that would otherwise be very headbutty and make them safe. So they're crucial conversations. That was a life changer. I, I wouldn't be what I'm doing, doing what I'm doing today without that. Another one is a, an idea I stumbled across from Seth Godin a long time ago called that word, <laughs> skewomorphism, I think. It's the idea of dressing new ideas up in old clothing. See the rivet on your jeans. You don't need rivets on your jeans. You needed them when they came out uh, to keep the jeans together. You don't need them these days. But if you don't have them, they're not jeans. You know when you take a photo with your camera and it makes a clicking sound? That's not a clicking sound really, it's just a playing back. It used to be a mechanical sound. But when they came out with uh, digital cameras, they wanted to make people f the new camera feel like an old camera so it was comfortable for people. Who's been into Dublin since they got here or might get a chance to? Anyone? A few of you, yeah? If you go in there, um, there's Grafton Street, main shopping centre. If you go to the top end of Grafton Street, you'll find St Stephen's Green, lovely green area where you can walk around uh, and around the border of it, part of it, you'll find a whole lot of Georgian houses, lovely red, red bricks, wrought iron stuff out front and painted doors. They practice skeuomorphism. Uh, what they do, they leave the exterior as it is so people feel really comfortable about those buildings, but they change the insides. We, we, I work for Royal London, we have an office there with a, uh, a sort of a purpley coloured door and you walk inside and it's all new, but if they change the facade, there would be outrage. And in fact, I know there would be outrage because on the other side of St Stephen's Green, when I first moved here, the tourist bus that used to take you around, uh, the tour guide took us past that and pointed out the, the, the abomination of new buildings that were on the corner. So skewomorphism is a great way of making things that are new feel comfortable for people who aren't so comfortable with new ideas. Uh, in Agile, for me, um, what that means is just using old language to, de to, to describe um, most of the new stuff in, in Agile, because most of it is um, old stuff, uh, and it's just easier if you don't freak people out. This one here is just an excuse to dress badly. Uh, do you remember Columbo? Yeah, just one more thing. Yeah, you think Steve Jobs is clever. He nicked his, uh, his, uh, um, his line. Just one more thing. Uh, Socratic irony is, is the, the idea of being Socratic by pretending to be dumb. Everyone knows you're not stupid, uh, but you're not telling them what to do. You're sitting there smiling a lot, going, oh, I don't know, and helping them figure things out themselves. But finally, 
stories. So today, I'm going to share with you a bunch of the stories I tell. Um, these are the... I'll just get moving on, but I can... Remember this? Small stories, in particular, are sneaky little bastards. Now, I'm not talking about big stuff here. Uh, these business novels, Monsters, Inc. is a business story, if you hadn't realised. Not talking about the fables in the middle. Talking about little tiny things, anecdotes, metaphors, pertinent jokes. Ideally, they'll make you smile. So here's one. Thank God you laughed. <laughs> you had me worried there for a minute. Okay, don't need to see that any further. Here's another one. <laughs> Hands up if you've never shared a Dilbert because it told a truth. Anyone? Okay. This one, this one's from me. It's not as funny. It wasn't funny for me. I'll tell you that. Who remembers this thing from last year's BOS conference in the goodie bag? Yeah, you remember this? It was. The, I thought, why the hell are they putting that thing in the goodie bag? Uh, until at two o'clock in the morning. I hope you can read that. <laughs> that saved my life and. Honestly, it also probably saved my uh, shoes as well. Um, the next morning, I didn't tweet this. Okay, so the first one, until I show you the second one there, it's, it's a story and it's vaguely amusing, um, but it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stories that have a point behind them. Suddenly, the point comes out when I let the same thing happen again, and that's just a lesson. I think we all learn, um, but sometimes you wrap stuff up in, in humour, it's useful. Okay, now this one here um, uh, is from I Love Lucy, who most of you won't remember, I don't think. Um, who does remember I Love Lucy? Okay, more than I expected. Right, so this is great to show lean teams, lean um, manufacturing teams often get shown this in Six Sigma training. Um, but it's actually really, really, really handy to show it to Agile teams uh, because they have this horrible habit of trying to do much more than they can achieve. What are you doing up here? I thought you were downstairs boxing chocolates. Oh, they kicked me out of there fast. Why? I kept pinching them to see what kind they were. <laughs> this is the fourth department I've been in. Oh, I didn't do so well either. No. All right, girls. Now, this is your last chance. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. Let her roll! <laughs> Okay. Listen, Ethel, I, I think this. 
<laughs> Fine, you're doing splendidly. Speed it up, Okay, so another video in a moment. I stumbled across this one last year uh, when someone showed that at a conference about two hours before I was supposed to show it. Uh, so I've got a, a, a small video next, which comes from the BBC last year. Uh, do you recognise these people on this, written on the screen? Um, uh, Mel Gibson and Sterling Moss. Uh, Paul, Paul Hollywood, the baker guy, and Sterling Moss, the racing car driver. 44 laps of corner after corner. Steady, not too wide. He's over! I've been asked uh, to race an Aston Martin GT4 at the Aston Martin Festival at Le Mans. Do you have any tips for me taking an Aston Martin around Le Mans? I would suggest, the same as I would with any other car, if you drive a little bit slower than you think you could do, you're going to be a lot better. That's interesting. So, overdriving it, and I have been yeah, guilty of it before. egg on your face, you know. It's difficult to get off if you make a mistake. That's the point. There's nowhere to hide with all those people watching. <laughs> Right, so that's not funny, but uh, it does illustrate for me one of the most important things about Agile or, or adopting any new idea, which is that, sorry, I've got a light straight in my eye there, uh, that we tend to overdrive change initiatives and we flood people and we try and boil the ocean and we end up failing. And here's this chap who was very, very fast at driving and he says, don't overdrive. Just go a little slower. Uh, I find that very, very useful video to show people because they can reflect on it when they see someone from a completely different world uh, describing their problem and how to avoid it. Now, here's a little story. This is a story where I tell a story about someone telling a story. Uh, this is, you, you're about to be treated to the uh, world famous Buffalo story. But first, um, let me just set this up. A uh, couple of years ago, I got a request from our CIO to go and have a look at our support team. Um, 16 uh, people, mixed roles, working on old code, fixing um, real-life bugs. They had 120 that were really, really, really um, top um, priority, and our CIO had promised he'd get rid of them by the end of the year, uh, which was there. Uh, and we had to increase their capacity by 30%. And he just asked me to go and have a little look and see if there's anything I could do uh, to help them out. So I went round, uh, talked to their manager. Uh, her name was Elaine. Elaine took me around and she showed me their board, which was really handy. And it just showed all the work there. And I had a look at that board and there was something missing. Um, oh, it was a, what's, oh, there was a test board around the other side. Okay, so that's the whole team's work process, but one of the most important bits of it was hidden from view. And then when you look at that, I knew instantly what was wrong, um, that, that we didn't have enough test resource relative to the upstream processes. So what was happening is that they were working faster than these codes could do it, and they're just getting a big pile up um, of stuff there. And I know that to be true because she picked off one of those and said, oh look, the developers worked on this a year ago and it's been sitting waiting in that pile ever since. So, I went away and I just got some numbers there, uh, rough numbers, and we just confirmed that the capacity, the number they could do each month, was just, it was just, it was clear that test was the 
bottleneck in this whole process. And if we could bump up our test capacity by 20%, then the whole team will get 20% more work through. Does that make sense? More or less? Good. So I sat in the meeting room with 16 people and the manager, and I explained this stuff. Um, and they all looked at me, uh, going, okay, yeah, it's not, clearly it didn't feel like it was their problem. So I asked them, have you, have I told you about the buffalo? Now, where I work now, there's a policy that if I ask someone that, and you're in a group, um, the correct answer is just to say yes, because I've heard it so many times, but these guys were fresh meat. This didn't actually happen in chairs. It was just one of those email things that went round. Um, but it's quite a good story. And it goes like this. I'll let, can you all read it at the back? Yep, I'll let you just read it along then. And you should go, whoa, cool animation. <laughs> oh, sorry, there's heads moving there. Well, you see, Norm, it's like this. A herd of buffalo can only move as fast as the slowest buffalo. The slowest buffalo stay at the back, and the faster buffalo run in front, but at the slowest speed. If they didn't do that, they would split apart. Like this. And then, um, if they were split apart, then the stronger buffalo at the front would be prone to be attacked, like that chap at the top, that guy at the bottom, by wolves. Evolution favored the herds that stuck together. And when these tightly packed herds were actually hunted by wolves, they were attacked from the back. And so they would kill the slowest buffalo, uh, who were the weakest. And by doing that, they'd make the whole herd stronger and faster. Make sense? Yep. Watch this. <laughs> now here, just in case you miss it, is the joke bit, okay? In much the same way, the human brain can operate as fast as the slowest brain cells. It's actually a well-known fact. Um, now, as we know, excessive intake of alcohol kills brain cells, also a well-known fact. But naturally, <laughs> naturally it attacks the slowest and the weakest. And this way, regular consumption of beer eliminates the weaker brain cells, making the brain a faster and more efficient machine, and that's why we feel so much cleverer when we've had a few pints. Okay, so not maybe the best joke in the world, but whenever I tell this, something interesting happens. I say, where's the slowest buffalo? Buffalo, And in this room, they all go, oh, it's, it's the testers. Ha <laughs> it's the testers, obviously. And I just explained all that uh, before, but they go, no, it's the testers. Right. Then I ask, well, how can you speed up this last buffalo? And you know what they say? Feed them to the wolves. Always. And then they laugh. I think that laughing is actually really important because it opens them up to get a little bit creative. So I say, how do you speed them up? And they come up with a bunch of different reasons. And then I say, well, how can the faster buffalo speed up? And they go, well, clearly they've got to slow down. And they mustn't just distract the testers. And in fact, they could probably figure out how to help the testers. So for this particular team, I actually don't know what they did. I kind of kicked off with the, the sensible theory stuff. That didn't go anywhere. 
I explained the analysis, didn't go anywhere. I told them the story, and then they solved their own problem themselves. They told me to effectively go away because they didn't need me anymore. Uh, they got well and truly easily their 30 40% improvement uh, just for the sake of that little story. And the book I mentioned before, The Goal, uh, Ellie Goldratt's book, the one that um, caused my first pivot in life, those are the first three steps I've just described from that book. Uh, go read the book. It's, it's honestly, it's wonderful. Now, here's some vague theory I made up. So, <laughs> stories are like little Trojan horses, especially the little funny ones, right? They carry a really sensible a truth, a, a, a principle or a lesson inside them, but they're little smiley horses, and they come up and they smile at you and go, oh, that's funny, and you laugh. Uh, and even if the, the, the joke isn't all that funny, it just makes the whole conversation feel harmless. Uh, and jokes are also memorable. That uh, punchline, um, I get people repeating and emailing me, hey, I told the buffalo story. And this happens you know, from people all around the world who, who've heard it. And they go, I told the buffalo story with a joke. If you can remember the punchline, that sticks in your head. And then you can almost recreate everything else unless it's about ants and throwing them in um, water. <laughs> now, so jokes, it helps if they're sticky and reproducible. There's another wonderful book, Made to Stick, please, hands up, yeah. More of you, that's good. This book is just brilliant if you want to be able to package up ideas and make them sticky so people can carry them with them. They have six criteria, uh, success, took them ages to do that, they should have come up with an extra S, but they're Americans, <laughs> and they can't spell. So, they say that good stories are simple. So you look back at the, um, the Buffalo story, it is really simple. Um, Unexpected, that, a surprising thing, it's, it's simple, but when you see, oh, they run at the speed of the slowest buffalo, uh, it's, it's quite a surprise for people, never heard that before. Uh, and also the punchline of jokes, they're almost always a surprise, um, which was what kind of makes them funny. They're concrete. Uh, so this story, you see, I've animated that. I could pop that out with the words and people can, can, can imagine it, they can make a film in their head. It's credible. The joke bit clearly isn't credible, but the idea behind it's credible. Now, it is emotional, but I'm not sure what you call the emotion um, that, that goes with laughing out loud, uh, really, really having a good laugh. There's some emotion there. But I think that the laughter um, is something that just opens people up to be slightly more creative and open to new ideas. At least that's what I've seen over and over and over again. You tell them something straight, and it doesn't sink in, you tell them uh, something that's funny and, and suddenly the mood changes. And these guys, Chip and Dan Heath, uh, they say that stories are flight simulators for the brain and they say that if you want to sell ideas, wrap them up in stories. Um, so I won't tell you this particular story today, but this chap here, Derek, I've not met him, um, but he tweeted uh, after reading my book uh, and he says, every time I read a newspaper article now, I'm reminded of Clark Ching's story about the Telegraph, Abraham Lincoln, and Agile. Good little stories stick in people's heads. And then they tweet about it, and people go and buy my book. Oh, now just to mostly actually, this was a spelling thing. 
Um, I added sneaky because, as you all know, stories are sneaky little bastards. Uh, but I just wanted to correct the American spelling there. Oh, did you see that? Hang on, just watch everyone. Oh, okay, another one. Oh. And good stories move. There's action, there's movement. That's really, really, really fundamental. And now, returning to the master himself, if you take nothing away, actually, take that one away. Drama is life with the boring bits taken out. Okay? For years, I, I, I now practice telling stories so they're, they're a bit, bit slicker, a bit faster. Take the boring bits out, otherwise you'll lose people because there's no movement. Oh, that's interesting. Right, there you are. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so Nick, this morning, said storytelling. It's story, 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 story. We, we've heard that in both talks, story. Uh, and the key thing about stories like this is that you don't have to be good at storytelling to tell them. You just have to try and find the appropriate story and uh, then just tell them quickly without too much boring detail. Now, where do you find stories, you ask? Obligatory Venn diagram here. Uh, so this type of stories I'm talking about are funny, ideally. They, they don't have to be, but it helps because they that whole smiling Trojan horse thing. And it helps if they've got a concept or a lesson. I don't just want um, concepts by themselves or principles. Uh, I don't just want uh, amusing stories. I want it where they um, click together. So where do you find them? And there's two ways to find them. Mostly copy. So much of what you've seen here is, is stuff I found elsewhere. And I've packaged it up. I, I tell it. Um, most of us copied. If you've ever emailed a Dilbert cartoon, you've just done that. You've seen something, you go, oh, the idea behind that, um, that cartoon is really, really pertinent here. Um, usually, oh, aren't managers idiots or something like that. You email it off and uh, someone reads the joke and, and they get the idea. So it's really, really easy to copy. Someone who I copy a lot, which annoys me immensely because I think he was an arsehole, um, was Steve Jobs. He ha actually has some wonderful uh, stories. Um, he has one about when he arrived back at, uh, what's it called? Apple. He arrived back at Apple. Sorry. Uh, he arrives back at Apple. And, he's, and he, he's then on a show later talking about what he did. And he said when he got back, um, he defined his strategy at Apple by drawing a line there and a line there on a whiteboard. So two by two matrix. And then he wrote desktop, laptop. And then he wrote consumer and professional. And then he said, if it's not on that board, it's not part of our strategy. And I think that's one of the most, most powerful lessons that I can take anywhere I go nowadays. Because he then went on to say he's really, really proud of the stuff that they didn't do and that they don't do. At least as proud of the stuff that they've got rid of so that they could focus on the stuff that is in their strategy. He has lots of lovely little stories. Now, this one here, um, I was in a restaurant in San Francisco. I was sitting down, 
lovely waitress comes up and says to me, what would you like? I say, fillet steak, please. And she says, certainly. Um, how would you like this done? I go, well, I'd like that medium rare. And then she pulls a little laminated card from her top pocket and says, point at it. <laughs> and I go, oh, it looks like that. And she goes, sir, that's medium. And then she rushes off. They cook the steak uh, and they bring it back. And it was cooked properly. So now, I stumbled on that, but I already had the idea in my head of test-driven development, test-first thinking, all of the good stuff about pulling test forward in software development. And now every time I'm working with testers, or actually just about anyone in the team, I start with this story told uh, slightly more slowly, uh, which explains to them why I want them to start talking about how they're going to test stuff before they build it. Otherwise, you cook the wrong steak. This guy. This guy's local. He was born in Dublin. One of the most important things we as parents do is we teach our children about time. We teach them important things like reading the clock. You actually think that's important? I'm going to teach you to read the clock. Huh? I'm going to teach you to read the time. Why? Why? Because it's important that you know the time. Why? Because how would you know when to get up to go to school? M mummy would make me. <laughs> what if mummy wasn't there? You'd wake me. What if we both weren't there? Wouldn't go to school. <laughs> how would you know when breakfast was? I'd be hungry. Shut up! <laughs> Somebody came along to you and said, what time is it? And you didn't know, you'd feel stupid. Why doesn't he feel stupid? He doesn't know. <laughs> Let me go through this whole thing. Going to teach you. I did it myself, with my son. Going to teach you how to read the clock. Now, this is a clock. It's not actually a clock. It is a clock, but it's not a clock. It's a watch. It's called a watch. It's a wristwatch because it's on my wrist. <laughs> yes, it's a wristwatch because it's on my wrist, and I watch it. Yes, it's very good. <laughs> now, there's time is made up of zones periods of time, all right? There's, there's hours and minute, no, not hours. No, they're not hours. <laughs> they're hours. <laughs> they don't belong to us. It's a different spelling, H-O-U-R-S. Not Howards. <laughs> it's silent, I don't know. <laughs> now, on every day, there are 24 hours, 24 of these hours. 12 in the day and 12 in the night. I know I said there are 24 hours in a day. 12 in the day, 12 in the night. But a day is made up of a day and a night. What are you, stupid? I couldn't very well say Monday, Monday night. Everybody knows when I say Monday, I'm talking about the 24 hours. Now shut up and listen! <laughs> now, on every clock or watch, there are three pointers. They're called hands, all right? They point to the hour, all right? You understand that? There's the hour hand. That's the first hand, the hour hand. The second hand is the minute hand, and the third hand is the second hand. <laughs> Shut 
We'll do away. Forget about the third hand. Forget it. It's gone, all right? It's gone. Now we have two hands. On the face of the clock, there are two hands, all right? There's the hour hand, which is the fat hand, and there's the thin hand, which is the minute hand. So you have a fat hand and a thin hand, all right? Fat hand, hours, thin hand, minutes. Right. Now, up the top of the clock, you see the number up there, one and two. One and two is 12. It's not three. <laughs> it would be three if you joined them together. We already have a three here on the side by itself. We don't need two bloody threes on a clock. So it's 12. All right? One and two is 12. So when the fat hand and the thin hand are pointing at the one and the two, it is 12 o'clock in the daytime! Because it would be dark and you wouldn't be able to see it. <laughs> now the thin hand starts to move away from the fat hand. It likes the fat hand. Yes, it likes the fat hand, but if it wants to tell the time, it has to go away from the fat hand. So it moves away from the fat hand leaving the fat hand at the one and the two, and then it comes over to the one here by itself. You see the one to the right of the one and the two? Now, that one is five. <laughs> because it is, it's five. Two is 10, three is 15, four is 20, five is 25, six is a half. So six is the half. Seven is twenty-five two or thirty-five past. <laughs> so now what's actually happening is a thin hand is moving around the clock from the one to the two, which is the five and the ten. And while he's doing that, the fat hand is moving slowly away from the one and the two. Yes, because fat hands move slowly, that's right. Fat things waddle away, yes, that's it. <laughs> and now, by the time the fat hand has got around to the one, which was the five, when the minute hand was pointing at it, and the one has come back right up to the one and the two, it is now what time? It is not five o'clock. <laughs> It's one o'clock, because when the thin hand points at it, it's minutes. The fat hand points at it, it's an hour. Now, you be a good boy and learn how to read the clock, and I'll buy you a digital watch. <laughs>
So we did that, and he ended up having a very, very successful uh, career, uh, basically doing that stuff. A lot of it was very um, punchy kind of stuff. He attacked the church, he attacked uh, power, but he did it in a lovely way, which was that he made people laugh at the ridiculousness of things. He had one skit where he had the Pope stripping, uh, which was in 1970s um, on the BBC, uh, and it was very controversial. But in his own way, he made his own little dent in the world um, by uh, making people laugh about really serious things. And this is what the uh, Guardian obituary said of him in 2005. Thus was born a style that made the public in a generation of comics then in its infancy. They're talking about um, alternative observational comedy. It made them think a little differently about humour, about the power of words, about authority, and about the world around them. So I'm going to leave it there, just on that thought, because I think that we as individuals uh, in our daily job can use the same technique he used, just on a much more personal basis. Tell little funny stories to get really important ideas across. You make people laugh, they, don't, they feel harmless, uh, they have a bit of a giggle, they become open-minded, and provided the stories are well chosen, uh, you can change the world. And that's why at work, for me, uh, people just say, well, he just bumbles around and he tells stories. But we've made quite a lot of money here since um, he came along and started telling us about the buffalo and the steak. Business of Software is more than just podcasts and conferences. We also have a host of great online masterclasses led by some of the world leading experts, all aimed at helping you do what you want to do better, better. For more information, visit businessofsoftware.org slash online dash masterclasses. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.